right, all right, all right. You may be thinking, that's not Josh. You're right. I'm not Josh. I am Chris. I am, hello. I am on staff here at Living Hope. And Josh, our, our pastor, he is taking a two-week break, much-deserved break. Um, so I am here in his stead, and I have the extreme privilege and honor to preach this morning to a bunch of people I love. So we're going to jump right in. Um, yeah, I'm excited. All right. So if you've been around this summer, you know that we've spent a pretty significant chunk of time talking about John 15. We were focused on the vine and the branches. Jesus says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. And um, that was both on Sundays and in summer community groups. Um, I got to spend four straight weeks with many of you talking about what this means specifically, what it means to be a branch. Um, Jesus says, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. So we are the branches and our goal is to abide in the true vine, that is Jesus. Out of our abiding comes growth in the form of fruit. Bearing fruit is not something we can do on our own. It can only be done when we are abiding in Jesus. I forgot to start a timer. I like having a timer. Do you know where I'm at? So we hear a message like this, the fact that all we have to do is abide in Jesus. Um, and we're like, yeah, that's awesome. Right on. Abide in Jesus. I can do that easy. Um, but abide is one of those churchy words that gets thrown around to the point that it sometimes loses its meaning. So literally abide means to remain, to stay in place. It's the same word Jesus uses as he's heading into Gethsemane to pray before he's to be arrested. He tells his disciples, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain or abide here and watch with me. And if you know that story, you know that his disciples ended up falling asleep twice while Jesus was sweating blood, asking the Father to, if at all possible, spare him from the cross. The disciples failed to remain fully present with Jesus. They failed to abide in him. During one of our summer community group discussions, someone compared abiding to sitting across from a person holding eye contact and not letting it break. There's a level of intimacy and intention in this. Abiding in Jesus means being fully present to the reality that he is fully present with us at all times. So abiding is something is less something we do and more so a posture of the mind and heart we can adopt. So since this is all backstory, I'm not even preaching it. That would make a great message, right? Since late June, I've been thinking a lot about abiding. I've been thinking a lot about being a branch, thinking about how Jesus says if we want an abundantly fruitful life, all we have to do is remain in place and stay in intimate relationship with him and he will do the work. For a first century Jewish audience, that would be able to instantly recall to mind much of the Old Testament. I'm sure this idea of abiding brought to mind many well-known passages. 
For me, the more I sat with the truth of the vine and the branches, the more I thought of popular verses like Exodus 14, 14, when Moses says, the Lord will fight for you, you need only to be still. I thought of Isaiah 30, when Isaiah says these words of God, in returning and in rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. And then, of course, Psalm 46, when God speaks out in the middle of warfare and tumult, and he says, be still and know that I am God. It seems like throughout the Bible, God is telling his followers to experience me, to see my activity, to have a life of righteousness and fruitfulness. All you have to do is stop. Cease striving, be still, stop, remain. He's saying, I'm already at work within you and around you, so stop exhausting yourself trying to do what I'm already doing. Be a branch and abide. Let me be the vine. Remain, just be. So at the start of this past week, my plan for this morning was to talk about stillness and the practice of what some call holy leisure, which is essentially scheduling time in your days to just do nothing intentionally choosing to be instead of do. But as I began praying and prepping this week, I thought of an experience my wife Melissa and I had the week before. So a little backstory, we have been fostering a toddler since December. And a couple weeks ago, we tried to implement family reading time. Uh, We read books to him every night before bed, but we wanted to begin to establish a love for independent reading, even though he doesn't know how to read. Um, So Melissa and I grabbed a book for ourselves, and we had him pick out a couple books for himself, and we sat on the couch together, and we set a timer for 15 minutes. The goal was for each of us to independently read our books in silence for 15 minutes. And a lot of you are laughing because you understand (laughs) this is a three-year-old boy. 15 minutes of silence and stillness is a very big ask. Um, 90 seconds in, the books were already face down on the floor. And he was just repeating our names over and over and over and trying to draw our attention away from our books. Because if he's done reading, then we are too. A three-year-old is go, 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 go from the moment he wakes up until nap time. And then once he wakes up from nap time, he's go, 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 go until bedtime. If there's any stopping, it's only for about 90 seconds. And at that point, his body just can't handle it anymore. And he has to move and talk and do something. And adults are very similar. Maybe not from a physiological standpoint. We don't have all this energy just built up inside of us. But we go, 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 go until we collapse. (laughs) Our world and our schedules demand it. Generally speaking, we are all overworked. We are all overscheduled. We are all exhausted just from life. Physics teaches us that an object in motion stays in motion unless acted upon. So for the average overworked person who's go, 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 from the moment their alarm wakes them up, it isn't a challenge. It isn't just a challenge to stop and be still in body and mind. It's pretty much impossible Even if we carved out time to sit still for five minutes, our minds would probably stay racing or we would spend the whole time fighting the impulse to grab our phones because we are addicted to screens and our brains just need to consume something. I recently read a short description of modern day monks. 
and how in a desire to live fully for Jesus, they choose to abstain from all the distractions of our modern age and live a life of simplicity, focusing their waking hours on abiding in the true vine, on remaining in the presence of Jesus. There's something so appealing about this monastic way of life, especially in light of the pace of our modern world, to be so unhurried and unbothered by the lack of productivity or a need to do something, to have no distraction stealing your attention away from Christ in you, the hope of glory. But very few of us are called to be monks. I imagine many of us in this room would say we are right where we believe God has called us to be. So we live in a modern society and we have to learn to live with all the distractions that come with it. But how do we reconcile the desire to stop so we can practice the presence of God with the fact that we live in a society that demands we go at full speed at all times until we are worn down, burnt out, and broken? So our main, our main text today is going to be in Luke 10, if you want to go ahead and turn there. It's a story I'm sure a lot of you are already familiar with. Um, it's the story of Martha and Mary. And I have to confess that I have personal beef with this story. Um, most times I've heard it taught, the message is directed toward people with type A personalities. And if you know me, I'm not a person with a type A personality. We hear about Martha and immediately apply what Jesus is saying to either ourselves or to everyone we know who are detail-oriented, task-driven, and who live their life at an urgent pace. And that's fair. It's fair to apply this story to those with type A personalities, but as someone with far more type B tendencies, I've always felt shortchanged. I may be laid back the majority of the time, but I can easily get distracted with the best of them. And usually I get distracted with stuff far more meaningless than tasks like Martha is distracted with. So I want to approach this story today with the hope of speaking to all of us in the room, not just the people who already know they relate. So let's look at Luke 10, starting in verse 38. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. So, off the jump, you may deeply relate to Martha, her friend and her rabbi, who she loved and esteemed, came into her home and was teaching. Imagine you get word that Jesus and his disciples are coming over. <laughs> they let you know, hey, we're going to come hang out. You would probably pull out all stops to make sure your home was spotless, that everyone felt truly at home. You'd cook a big meal, breaking out your biggest crowd-pleasing recipe, not to show off or to show how good of a cook you are, but to truly make sure people feel welcome and at home and enjoy their time. Despite knowing who Jesus is and logically understanding the magnitude of having him in your home, your mind would likely drift instead to all the tasks that need to get done 
before and during his stay to make sure he and everyone there have an environment most conducive to being present with Jesus. This is all completely understandable. And despite the negative lean of this story, I'd argue it's not a bad thing. And I don't think the point Jesus is trying to make is that service and hospitality are wastes of time or that distractions or that they're distractions in and of themselves. I think the distinction we need to hone in on, hone in on is Luke saying the phrase, Martha was distracted with much serving. What was she distracted from? She, certainly she was distracted from Jesus' teaching. But let's look again at verse 41. It says, the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. He says, you are anxious and troubled about many things. Now on the surface, this reads as the many things Jesus is referring to are the tasks of service that Martha has distracted herself with. And this may be true, but I tend to think he's actually making the opposite point. Because Martha is anxious and troubled, she has turned to service to distract her from the inner turmoil she would otherwise be feeling. Whatever it was that was troubling Martha, it was heavy enough that she had unconsciously made the decision that it was easier to mentally distract herself from the weight of worry or sadness or fear or grief than to actually stop and sit with those feelings. Distraction can be a healthy coping mechanism, letting someone separate from stressful triggers long enough to allow them to return to an emotionally regulated state. But distraction becomes unhealthy when it's used to avoid feelings that are meant to be felt and processed. We deal with both internal and external stressors every day. Bad news, the stress of fractured friendships, intrusive thoughts, feeling like a disappointment or failure, living in shame over the decisions we've made, the pain of abuse or trauma and the memory of it, there's so much sadness and brokenness in this world that, of course, we don't want to give ourselves over to those feelings. Avoidance often feels like the only option that makes sense. So like Martha, we give ourselves over to the other thing this world has an endless supply of, things to keep us busy. The tricky thing is we often turn to admirable and good things to distract ourselves from what Jesus calls the good portion. And sometimes we can even turn to those things from a pure motive, but over time, they evolve into worthless distractions or even worse, idols. Martha was distracted with service and service is good. Richard Foster dedicates an entire chapter to the spiritual discipline of service in his book, Celebration of Discipline. And many spiritual gift inventories classify service as a way God gifts his people for kingdom work. You have to think Martha didn't always serve out of a sense of entitlement or a need to be appreciated. She loved serving and it probably came natural to her. So of course that would be one of the first things she turned to as a distraction. What are some of the other good things that can distract us from the good portion, as Jesus says? Or put another way, what is getting in the way of us being able to live into our identities as branches abiding in the vine? Achievement in the workplace and school, being a likable person or people-pleasing in its many forms, striving to be a great parent or spouse, or even striving to be a good Christian, 
Even that can get twisted in a way that's unhealthy. These are all things that can start in a good, healthy place. They start out of a desire to steward well the life God has given us. But as soon as we get swept up in the hurried pace of the world around us, they easily become idols and start zapping the life out of us. As Tim Keller says, they turn from a good thing to an ultimate thing. They turn from a good thing into a God. And here's the thing. We often won't know these good things are idols unless we slow down long enough to place each of them on the altar in front of Jesus and ask him to search us and know our hearts. Ask him to test and know our anxious thoughts. Good things can morph so slowly into idols that we often don't see the draining and toxic effect it has on our relationship with Jesus and with others until they've already done harm. But these are the good things. (laughs) These are the things that start in a good place. These are the things that relate us to Martha and her service. The sneaky distractions that subtly take over our lives and cause us to miss Jesus' teaching in the other room. Another form of distraction to consider is the neutral or unhealthy distractions. Sometimes we turn to mind-numbing entertainment and content consumption to distract our anxious and troubled hearts and minds. We'll spend the afternoon doom-scrolling terrible news on Facebook or Twitter, progressively becoming more and more desensitized and apathetic to both the good and the bad. Netflix starts playing the next episode of a TV show we're binging before we even have the chance to act on our impulse to click play next episode. We fill our time and our minds with memes, TikTok, and other content. Not art, not even entertainment, but content. And the mini dopamine hit to the brain every time we scroll past something new we like progressively shortens our attention span and destroys our capacity for joy until they have withered away completely, making it nearly impossible to sit down and encounter God during a quiet time. These distractions of the modern age are designed to suck us in and make us addicted. And they are training us to interact with God and with each other in shallow and meaningless ways. In his book, The Life You've Always Wanted, John Ortberg says this about the dangers of distraction. He says, for many of us, the great danger is not that we will renounce our faith. It's that we will become so distracted and rushed and preoccupied that we will settle for a mediocre version of it, a mediocre version of our faith. We will just skim our lives instead of actually living them. How many times have you sat down with your Bible for a quiet time, prayerfully desiring a true and real encounter with Jesus You open it up, read for about five minutes, and ultimately feel disappointed because you had trouble focusing in that short amount of time and didn't feel anything. Or you start praying, and a couple minutes later, you realize at some point you just stop praying altogether and let your thoughts take over. Our brains have been wired for our high-paced, busy, and hurried world. Most of us lack the capacity to encounter Jesus on our own because the pace of Jesus is much slower more intentional, and less hurried. Japanese theologian Kosuke Koyama, he wrote a book called Three Mile an Hour God, in which he calls the intentional pace that Jesus moved through his life the pace of love. Moving at the pace of love, Jesus was never too busy, nor was he ever in too much of a hurry to not make time for others. 
He never gripes about having to put others' immediate needs ahead of what he was doing at the time. He never complains about someone interrupting him to request something. Some examples of this, he stopped everything to go to the centurion's house to heal his paralyzed servant. Children are brought to Jesus in the middle of his teaching, and he stopped what he was doing to lay hands on them and pray for them, while also rebuking his disciples for criticizing the fact that he would stop everything and pray for the children. In Matthew, we read of a ruler who interrupts Jesus' teaching, asking him to raise his daughter from the dead. And as he's responding to him, the woman with the blood reaches out to touch the hem of his garment. He heals and encourages her. So in the interruption, he was interrupted. And Jesus stops and gives time to both the woman and the man and treats them both with love and compassion. Jesus was deliberately slow so he could devote the necessary time and energy to anyone that may come to him. Jesus was unhurried and he never missed an opportunity to lavish the love of his father on those who needed it and craved it. He always chose the good portion and out of that, he was able to love perfectly. This is obviously a desirable life, a life where we are freed up so that we can actually focus on the two greatest commandments, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. So we come back to the same question as before. How do we reconcile this ideal with the realities of the world we live in? Before we can say yes to the good portion like Mary did, we need the space in our lives to do so. We are so overextended and overscheduled because our society demands it of us. We need to intentionally carve out margin in our lives. Creating margin is something incredibly simple, but also extremely difficult. James Bryan Smith describes creating margin as just saying no, saying no to anything that is not absolutely necessary to the well-being of your soul or the welfare of others. It's not a matter of eliminating the worthless things from your schedule or budget, because if you found them worthless, they wouldn't be in your schedule or budget in the first place. It's a matter of asking Jesus to help you to weigh the necessity of all the good things that are taking up your time and energy. It's asking him for help and being open-handed with your life so that he may start exposing some of those good things that became ultimate things over time. <clears throat> is it truly good for your soul to work 60 to 80 hours a week? Is it truly good to hit the snooze on your first five alarms every morning? Is it truly good to pack every weeknight with extracurriculars? These aren't rhetorical questions because I don't know your personal calling. I can't assume to know the answers to them, but we also shouldn't assume that we know the answers to them in our own lives. Each question has an answer and these questions and questions like them should be brought to Jesus who can answer them perfectly. So step one is creating margin. Only when we have margin freed up, can we slow down the pace of our lives to the pace of Jesus. With margin, living life at the pace of love becomes a possibility. I'm going to go back to our friend John Ortberg again. He defines uh, slowing as a 
Uh, he defines slowing as a spiritual discipline. And his definition of slowing is cultivating patience by deliberately choosing to place ourselves in positions where we simply have to wait. So you're cultivating patience by deliberately waiting. Can you imagine deliberately waiting on something when you don't have to? No. (laughs) Why would we? Have you ever bought something online and chosen week-long shipping when you have free two-day shipping right there? No. (laughs) Of course not. Technology has made it so that if we have an impulse or a craving, we can satisfy it almost immediately, often for free or of little charge. And because it's a possibility in most areas of our lives, we often feel entitled to instant gratification in every area of our life. But Ortberg suggests it would do our souls good to deliberately choose to wait. In a world like ours, the discipline of slowing is a countercultural act of rebellion against the hurried pace of everything else. For those uh, just starting out with slowing down, uh, pastor and author John Mark Comer suggests some of the following ways to begin to introduce slowness into your everyday life. One way is deliberately choosing to drive in the right lane for your entire commute. Don't go over the speed limit at all. When you come to stop signs, come to a full stop. Don't, none of the rolling stop stuff. Next time you're in a grocery store, look for the longest line and get in it. Plan to arrive 10 minutes early to your next meeting or your next appointment. All of these are silly. And none of them are inherently spiritual, but as you slow down in these superficial ways, you're training your mind to operate at a slower pace in other areas. You're loosening your grip on the need to be productive or efficient. And this will only enhance your relationship with Jesus. Keep at it and you will begin to actually cultivate patience in all areas of your life. Consistency here will slowly break your addiction to instant gratification, which in turn will transfer to your time with Jesus. Another way to adopt a slower pace of life is by embracing boredom and embracing FOMO or fear of missing out. Sidetrack, let's talk about omniscience. God is omniscient, which means he knows everything. God's omniscience is what is called an incommunicable attribute. This means it's a quality of God's that he does not share with us. Because we are created in God's image, there are certain qualities that find their source in God that we can share in love, mercy, goodness, kindness, patience. Many of God's moral attributes are the ones that uh, we are also given the capacity and ability to share in, but we do not have the ability to be all-knowing. Yet, I feel like we spend so much of our time in our lives chasing omniscience, Because we have devices that not only contain all the world's knowledge simply by swiping, but also uh, they allow us to superficially connect to others in ways that were never possible until about 15 years ago. We feel like we should be able to connect with anyone about anything if, if we so desire simply because it's a possibility. We never want our phone to leave our side because what if we miss a text or a call or a snap? What if we miss breaking news and are the last people in our group chat to find something out? That would be embarrassing. 
I shudder to think of what would happen if I got bored and my phone wasn't within reach. Social media has tricked us into thinking we need to know everything about everyone as soon as it happens, and the 24-hour news cycle has tricked us into thinking we need to know everything about everything as soon as it happens. That's omniscience. We don't have the capacity for it. Acting on this compulsion to always be in the know about everything is like building a tower to heaven. Our insatiable appetite for knowing is robbing us of opportunities to simply trust, to have faith that God is who he says he is, that you are who he says you are. God is sovereign. He's in control. He's got the whole world in his hands. And he's actively working things together for your good according to his purposes. Our phones have their claws in us and we need to actively and deliberately pursue a life free from addiction to them. Think again about some of those suggestions I gave before about slowing. As you're trying these things, picture yourself doing them without your phone. Choose the longest line in the grocery store and wait and keep your phone in your pocket. Becomes even more challenging. Get to a meeting or an appointment or appointment early and leave your phone in the car. Remember waiting rooms? We had magazines. Like no one, I feel like no one uses magazines anymore. Drive deliberately slow, and of course, don't don't text and drive. Keep your screen off. Focus on being present in the real world. Pay attention to the people around you. Without the distraction of your phone, maybe you will feel the urging of the spirit to pray for the person next to you. Or maybe you'll even strike up a conversation with them. That's terrifying, right? You never know how God will use you simply by being present and attentive to the world and the people around you. But you can't be attuned to the spirit if you're glued to a screen. Some more suggestions for untethering yourself from your phone. Have a specific spot in your home for your phone and leave it there at all times. If that feels too extreme, maybe make some phone-free zones. Uh, say no phone in the bedroom or the bathroom. Try turning your phone off before you fall asleep and not turning it back on until you have spent time with the Lord the next morning. Whether that's in prayer or Bible study or meditation or just stillness, choose the good portion first. Pay attention to the things the Spirit brings to mind as you choose to deliberately live life without the crutch of your phone. Maybe there are things that he has been wanting to reveal to you, but you've been distracted with much phoning. This is what slowing down to the pace of Jesus enables. It begins to make it possible to encounter God in both the sacred and holy moments and also the mundane moments. In a literal sense, it is impossible to follow someone if you're going faster than them. Our world says sprint, our savior says stroll. Our world says do, our savior says be. We're gonna look at Mark 1, if you wanna turn there. Um, so in our story about uh, Martha and Mary, Martha was convinced that she was doing the right thing and that Mary was in the wrong for sitting at Jesus' feet instead of helping her. She was so caught up in her distraction that she mistook the goodness of Mary partaking in sweet fellowship with Jesus for laziness and rudeness. 
Jesus seized a rare distraction-free moment and spoke truth into her situation. Martha had to slow herself just enough to be able to receive that message. Like in all matters of following Jesus, he offers us example after example throughout the Gospels of how to do it. We're going to look at one in Mark 1, starting in verse 35. (coughs) Excuse me. 35 says, And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. There he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. So we see Jesus here creating margin. He gets up before dawn. He slowed down by seeking solitude away from his disciples so he could practice intimacy with his father in prayer. Without the pressure of having to do and go, he was free to just be. In this brief example, he shows us what it means to choose the good portion. However, just like in our world, stillness and solitude never lasts. God has called each of us to certain people and places, and there are tasks that must get done. Jesus had the same challenge. So Peter comes to find Jesus, and in verse 38, he says, Jesus says, let, let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also, for this is why I came out. Jesus knows the tasks in front of him. In part, his slow pace and his hurryless approach to life enables him to abide so closely with the Father, making him fully secure in all the things the Father has called him to. In obedience, he says yes to that calling, and he goes throughout all Galilee, preaching in synagogues and casting out demons. Jesus is displaying a life of perfect balance. He slows his life, deliberately creates time to spend with the Father. He abides in him perfectly. And out of that, he is able to do the work he has been called to do. Martha's service was never the issue. The issue, in part, was the lack of balance. She was so overextended that she was missing out on the opportunity to sit at the feet of the creator of the universe and learn from him. She was choosing tasks over the opportunity to just be a branch connected to the vine. Now, I confess that my life is out of order in many ways, and I too am overextended. And I imagine a lot of you feel the same way. The good news is that Jesus understands Remember, he's omniscient. He knows. He knows the world we live in. He lived in it. Maybe not this society, but he lived in the world. He understands the brokenness and how easy it is to get distracted. He knows each of us intimately, and he knows the burdens we're carrying. And because of all that, he doesn't expect us to immediately go from 100 to zero. He meets us right where we are with compassion and understanding every time. And he has given us a context of grace and mercy to work things out, these things out with him. <clears throat> this isn't about performing. This isn't about getting it right. It's about taking steps each day to slow our pace and reorder our lives. 
so that there are fewer and fewer moments throughout our days where we lose sight of him and more moments when we are postured like a branch remaining connected to the vine. This takes a slow, progressive, but deliberate purging of the busyness from our lives. And that needs to happen before we are ready to truly be still and know he is God. So I want to close by sharing with you a little bit about my favorite place in the world. Um, So I spent 11 straight summers from the age of 10 until I was 20 attending a summer camp in Mississippi called Strong River. And I started as a camper, and by my last three summers there, I was a counselor. And Strong River is deliberately, uh, the culture moves at the pace of love, maybe even slower, honestly. Uh, Like many summer camps, there's no technology. Even the counselors had to keep their phones locked away. Watches weren't even allowed. And no one but the directors ever knew what time it actually was at any given point. We would know it would be almost lunchtime because you could smell the rolls coming out of the oven, even from about half a mile away on the other side of camp. This culture made it so that the campers and counselors alike could be fully present to the moment, whether it was learning how to canoe, trying to hit a bullseye at the archery range, or being rejected by your summer crush. The highs and the lows were felt fully because the camp pace was slow and it was built on relational connection and friendship. People knew when you were happy or sad or homesick or joyful because everyone was undistracted and fully present with one another. So Strong River is not a Christian camp in the same way that Pine Grove or Sky Ranch is, but there were definitely moments when God would peek through. And Gracie, if you want to throw that picture up. So one example of this happened every morning. After breakfast, the entire camp would gather in this small little amphitheater, and eventually it was used for morning announcements, what was going on in the day. But we would all pass through that entryway right there and go down the stairs and find a seat. But the rule was, as soon as you pass through the entryway, you had to go silent. There was no more talking. You could hear all the excitement and laughter behind you in the rest of the camp. But when you entered, you had to be silent. Slowly, as more and more people came in, the din of the camp would just slow down and get quiet as more and more people took a seat. Can you show the next one, Gracie? So it's hard to make out But that's the placard above the entryway. It says, be still and know that I am God. So we would all pass under that and practice it. And as a kid, I hated it. (laughs) Because you would have to sit there and be still for five to ten minutes before you could hear the announcements and then just run to the pool, you know. But I started to appreciate it as a counselor. There were even a few times that I would wake up before pretty much everyone else and just go sit on the stage. I could hear the river behind me. I'd be surrounded by the sounds of woods. 
And this was before I knew Jesus. This was before I became a Christian or a Christ follower. But I believe the peace and the tranquility within me in those moments was due to the fact that as a person made in the image of God, I was created to slow down, be still, and remain. The pace of Jesus is meant to be the default for each one of us. So, of course, it's going to feel feel right when we actually practice it. Now, this little taste of what slowing down and abiding could be um, that I got as a kid all the way up to right before I met Jesus in college, it unlocked a desire within me that I know, that I now know is fulfilled in abiding in the true vine. Our world makes this challenging, makes it feel impossible, but I know it's impossible. I know it's possible. (laughs) Sorry. And it's certainly worth taking the steps to slow down and follow Jesus at his pace. But what we're going to do is eventually the band's going to come back up. We're going to sing. Communion will be right over here at the table if you feel led to do that. You can come give at the table over here. All acts of worship, all acts of putting yourself in front of Jesus. But before that, we've got time. I want to spend 60 seconds in stillness and silence. This is going to be terrible for the podcast. (laughs) And it's going to be awkward for the live stream. But if if you will go with me there, I want you to shut your screens off, close your Bibles, put away all distractions, and just sit in silence for 60 minutes. Nope, 60 seconds. (laughs) Maybe in about a month we can come back and revisit that. So for a minute, a full minute, I want to just be in silence in this room. Don't even pray. Like, try, try to just be still. Don't do anything. Just be still. So I'm going to start the timer, and at the end of it, I'm going to pray, and the band can come back up, and we'll sing. Father, you are a good and gracious God. You are a God who created us to be slow. Lord, you have called none of us to the hurried pace of this world. So I just ask for your help. Anyone who feels the pressure to perform to do, to keep up with the crazy world around us, Lord. I pray that you 
use today to start breaking those chains. God, I pray that you teach each of of us uh, just ways to be present with you. As Brother Lawrence says, to practice the presence of God. God, we need your help. We can't do this in our own strength. We can't bear the fruit of that on our own. It only comes from the true vine. So Lord, eventually this service will come to an end and we'll walk through those doors and re-enter into the world. But I pray that this very short amount of slowing, it sticks with us. and It loosens the grip that the pace of life has on all of us. Lord, bless us and keep us. Be with us. Lord, we love you. And we pray all this in the name of your slow and deliberate son, Jesus Christ.